Well, thank you, Andrew, and thank you, everyone, for your welcome. Uh, it is wonderful to be here today and to be able to gather this wonderful multicultural uh, gathering. Uh, and what an amazing thing COVID has done for us, enabling us to live stream places. And I know that there are some people uh, watching in Sydney today as well. Uh, so greetings uh, to you on the live stream. Uh, and apologies for the microphone situation as well. Uh, let me know if you can't hear at some point as well. I need actually to start off today with a couple of warnings. One is uh, I don't speak Malay or English. I can only speak Austra Australian. So I, I would appreciate your grace in, in dealing with me and uh, as, you, as it takes extra to listen to that language. Uh, the other thing is that when Jesus spoke about the ascension in the Gospel of John, he said, look, if you're not offended by the ascension, you haven't really understood it. So there you go. Here we are in Acts 1, 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. And what we're going to see today is this passage, which is often used as a passage to whack people over the head, you should do more evangelism, is actually more about Jesus than it is about us. And where it is about us, it's more about who we are than what we do. And we're going to just focus on two scenes in verses 6 to 11. And I've got two points this morning, you'll be glad to know, just two. The ascension changes the servants of the king. And secondly, the ascension changes the servant king. And if you've got a Bible open, that would be very helpful. Uh, we're at Acts chapter 1. Have a look at verse 6 with me, where the disciples ask a question of Jesus. It's a great question, as we saw in the end of Luke and the beginning of Luke volume 2, Acts. Jesus has been teaching his disciples extensively about himself from the Old Testament, and they have been listening. So they ask, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, often Jesus' answer to them is understood as, as no, but there's something else going on here. Jesus' answer is designed to shift his followers to not the when, but the how. How will the kingdom be restored? The timing, of course, is way above the disciples' pay grade, but the how of this restoration has everything to do with these followers of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is saying, just put away your clocks and your timelines and your calendars. What you need to know is that God's restoration is going to travel through his people. And how he will do that is by creating a new community in which the Holy Spirit is breathed. The testimony of these people will be breathtaking. That's Jesus' answer in, in verse 7. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, if you are into corporate speak, that is Jesus' vision statement for the people of God. But the fascinating thing about this statement here is that actually it's not a command, is it? It's three promises. What God will do, he will pour out his spirit on you. How he will change you, so you'll be my witnesses. And thirdly, something to do with the reason he's acting. He wants his disciples to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, to the ends of the earth. 
Now, our problem as we, as we read this kind of passage, I think, is we get hung up on the word witness. We've seen bad witnesses. Those American tele-evangelists that you know, buy jets and live a double life. And we don't want anything to do with that. Apologies if you're American, by the way. I'm not saying that's all Americans. The other thing is that we've done witnessing ourselves so badly often. We often think about what we should have said hours after we wanted to say it. We often get more involved and invested in winning the argument than loving people. We want others to know about Jesus, but often we end up just feeling guilty because we haven't done a very good job at witness. And this whole market in books and conferences and things that designed to kind of assuage that guilt. But what is going on here in Acts is so much more profound and deeper. And that is because... Being the kind of witness that Jesus is speaking about has much more to do with who you are than what you do. I've got two confessions. The first is I love Harrison Ford movies. And the second is I don't care if you know. Now some of you are going, yeah, me too. I love Harrison Ford movies. And others of you are saying, who? But the Harrison Ford movie Witness is a classic example of what I'm talking about. A boy in a public bathroom overhears a conversation he's not meant to hear and the bad guys who had the conversation get to know about the existence of this witness and Harrison Ford's got to solve the, save the world all over again. And here's the point. The boy didn't choose to be a witness. He just was. He didn't particularly want it. It happened to him because of what he experienced. If you put your trust in Jesus, if he sent his spirit into you, then you too are a witness to him. But the key to understanding these promises here, these three promises in Acts, are to recognise that actually they have an Old Testament background from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. You will be my witness is a, is a quote from Isaiah 43. Let me give you a bit of background. In, in, in Isaiah 41 to 45, God basically calls a lawsuit against the false gods, the idols. Uh, uh, to the ends of the earth, he calls this suit. Uh, these idols promise lots, but they do not deliver. And each side can call witnesses in this suit, the idols and God. And God calls his people as witnesses. The only problem is, as Isaiah explains, that his people are blind and deaf. They've experienced the kindness and goodness of God, but they've turned their eyes and their ears away from him. So Isaiah 43, God says in verse 8, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears, that's his people, all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and hear them say and hear it's true. Is this lawsuit being gathered together. And then God turns to his people in verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. Now how will God effectively heal the deafness and blindness in his witnesses, so that they will effectively witness to the true and living God, to the ends of the earth. Well, very simply, chapter 42, the chapter before what I was reading, 
uh, indicates he will use one man, the servant, and the servant will go on to be very important in Isaiah. And this servant will open the eyes and ears of the people. And then in the next chapter, chapter 44, he will pour out his spirit on his people and they will confess his name with a new heart and they will be called my witnesses. Chapter 44, verse 8, fear not, do not be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I know of none. So do you understand that when Jesus says to his apostles, you are my witnesses, he is taking on his lips the words of the ruler of heaven and earth. And he's saying to his followers, 40 days after his resurrection, you fellas, you're my witnesses, not because of your great giftedness, you're superior in persuading people or you're better than anybody else or you never make mistakes. My witnesses, because I've made you my witnesses. It's because of what I will do that you will be my witnesses. Through the Holy Spirit changing you, you'll become my witnesses to the whole world. See, if you are a Christian, or if you, if you see a Christian, just watch them. And it shouldn't be too long before you see that they are witnesses to Jesus. Before too long you find their attitudes and their hopes, they're somehow caught up with Jesus. That's just who we are. That really is my first point. See, the ascension of Jesus makes a massive change for his followers. The reality is, of course, that every person in the world is a witness to something. I uh, like to think of myself as a budding photographer. Uh, if you watch me go around places, you'll see I carry my camera with me. Jesus has put his spirit in us, made us his followers to be his witnesses, witnesses of him. And it's not so much the plans we make or the, our ability to win arguments or convince people of our point of view, but it's what happens between the plans very often that we point to him no matter what we're doing. And you know, often it feels very awkward and not the right time to witness to Jesus, but the point is that he has made us his witnesses. And that will out. Now, of course, in Acts 1, Jesus is speaking specifically to his apostles, who did uniquely and authoritatively witness his life and death, suffering and death and resurrection, and we are witnesses of their witness in that sense. But when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses... It's not a strategy to grow the church. He's giving us a new identity, a missional identity, of which the apostles formed the core. I mean, what do you, th what do you think the power is about that Jesus promises? It's because he's promising it's God who's going to be at work. That's what's going to make the difference. Here in Acts 1, Jesus is taking responsibility for the mission of the church. And that's why it's going to be ultimately absolutely unstoppable. Because the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead has now come on us. It's a massive change for God's people. And, and if you look at the logic of what Jesus is saying, the first thing he's going to do is to mend the centuries-long division between his people. Why do you think Jesus in verse 8 said all Judea and Samaria? Do you notice that? 
It's not being a tour guide. You know, go and see all the places you can, right? It's not a geographical reference. The bitter north-south divide will be healed in his kingdom. Where Jesus rules, the things that make for civil war are driven away. In spite of us living still in this sinful world with the reality of sin around us and in us, you will still see that amongst his followers. The Moravian Christians were a group of refugees who in the 16th, 17th century, uh, the time of the Reformation, uh, came to live on the lands of a wealthy count, Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. He had heard of their plight and allowed them to come and settle his extensive grounds. And they were extraordinary people, really the forerunners of Protestant mission in the world. For over a hundred years, they had a continuous prayer meeting going in one of their chapels, 24-7, just taking it in turns. You ready for that? Starting next week? Look, some of their number, although they'd been refugees, went out into the world to be missionaries. Some of them even sold themselves into slavery in the West Indies in order to evangelise the other slaves. Where do you think the power to do that kind of thing comes from? But in one sense, it was only them being who they are. They're part of the unstoppable mission of Jesus. Do you know what the last word is in the book of Acts? I mean, it depends what translation you've got, but it's the word unhindered. After persecution and execution and shipwreck and house arrest, the gospel goes forward unhindered. Sometimes Christians get troubled by the hostility and opposition to the gospel in our place. I mean, we do in my patch, but God has made us, his people, his witnesses. And he's promised to give to his son the ends of the earth as his possession through us. So do not be afraid. Well, secondly, and much more quickly, you'll be glad to know, some of you are probably panicking, thinking we are not got halfway through, but we are, let me assure you. Secondly, the ascension means a massive change for the servant king. You, you know, in this passage, the actual ascension of Jesus is described with a great deal of restraint. I mean, you wouldn't, it kind of wouldn't rate on TikTok or Twitter, would it? Uh, verse 9, when he'd said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud hid him from their sight. You couldn't even see what happened at the end. And it might not surprise you to hear that there are theological experts who call themselves Christian who just mock this whole idea and they call it crude and pre-scientific as if this is an example of Jesus teleporting around the universe somehow. I want you to notice one thing, one particular word in these two verses, 10 and 11. It's the singular word, heaven. Not heavens, but heaven. So at this point, just, after, just like after Jesus' resurrection, two angels turn up to explain what's going on. Verse 10. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And they didn't see it, did they, actually? Because the cloud hid him from their sight. Because what we've got here... It's a physical, spatial description of a new relational reality. 
If Prince Charles ever becomes king, he will ascend the British throne, right? And it'll change his relationship with every Englander and probably everybody in the Commonwealth. And in the corporate world, we talk about climbing the ladder or you're on top of your work. In this description of Jesus' ascension here, it's not saying Jesus became the first spaceman. You know, I don't know if you've seen some of those stained glass window depictions of Jesus' ascension with just the two feet hanging down from the top of the frame. Um, that's not quite the point. At the ascension, the Son of God, our crucified King, took his resurrected body into the presence of God. And look, the way you're going to describe that is not sideways or down, it's up, isn't it? Now, where is Jesus now? Well, C.S. Lewis, I think, gave us a lot of thought to the relationship between worlds. In his Narnia series, we've got a model of how one world relates with our world and how you can move between them under the provision of Aslan. And it's not a perfect picture, but I think it is some kind of insight into what's given us here in Acts. But, of course, there's another insight as well, isn't there, that comes from the Old Testament. In our Old Testament reading from Daniel 7 this morning, we read this in verse 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. Do you see? That day when Jesus ascended behind the clouds, he came on the clouds to the Father into heaven. From heaven's point of view, that was a, grave, a day of great rejoicing, wild rejoicing. Because Jesus comes to the Ancient of Days, having achieved through his becoming a human and his suffering and death and resurrection, what qualified him to now be the ruler of God's kingdom forever. In Australia, we've just changed rulers, changed government. As far as I know, no one died doing it. And that is a tremendous thing, actually, isn't it? When you don't, no one has to die to change rulers. Uh, but it won't be too long before the shine wears off. Because the problem is the new blokes, just like all the others, have gone before him. That's the problem with the democracy, isn't it? The pool of people we get to choose from are just like us. And by the way, I believe democracy is the worst form of government ever, ever, ever invented, except for all the rest. But you see, Jesus is not like us. Instead of using power for his own good, he gave up his life to change the government of eternity forever. What General 7 shows is this transfer of power into Jesus' hands. That is what the ascension means. God placed the man Jesus Christ at his right hand and he calls all the earth to submit to Jesus, to turn to him, to trust him. And frankly, that changes everything. Changes the way the mission of God works, because now in us, his people, Jesus can be present to all corners of the world, every culture, every nation. We no longer have to go to Jerusalem to meet Jesus and look, there's not much more to say about that. We don't have time now. But it also changes how we worship. And it, and it changes suffering. I mean, just think about this for a minute. When Jesus ascends to the Father, he takes with him every part of his life, all of his experiences. And this is absolutely vital to those of us trying to minister 
and be faithful in the midst of suffering as his followers. Because Jesus does not sympathise with us as an outsider, but as one who in some mysterious way personally knows everything you are going through. He shares the experience with you. Just lastly, Jesus' ascension changes what it means to be human because since Jesus' ascension to the Father's side, in Jesus we see perfect, glorified, pristine humanity in the presence of God. And what that means for each of us is that here is not our ultimate home. We don't have dual citizenship. Our true citizenship is in Christ, in heaven. And you know, that is going to out in our present life. You see, the ascension is a little bit offensive, isn't it? Day by day, Jesus calls us to take up the cross and follow him. Restored humanity, you see, will hurt and will leave scars, scars that are cross-shaped. I love passion fruit, despite the fact that they've taken over not only our backyard but our neighbour's backyard this year. You know why they call passion fruit? Because when you look at the flower, the beauty of the passion fruit is cross-shaped and passion is Latin for suffering. The true and living God has put his spirit in you and he has made his people cross-shaped that we might deny self and love Jesus first and love what he loves. The life that follows Jesus as his witnesses is full of the glory of the crucified God. And when you see it for what it is, it is breathtaking. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.